in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Nathan Lutz, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Brian Fry. How are you, Brian? I'm doing well, guys. Cheers, everybody. Hope you're happy you're listening. Glad to hear that. Glad to hear that. And also with me today, and someone that you have heard before on a previous episode, but is now joining us officially as a host, I will introduce Dustin Melbardis. How are you, Dustin? Hey there. I'm excited to be part of the team, part of the roundtable. Ready for the first assignment. All right, all right. Well, let's move into this. Tell us a little about yourself, Dustin. Well, I'm 33 years old. I've got a mohawk and a mustache. I love uh, living in Central Texas, and I love talking about sci-fi movies. All right, well, that sounds sounds like you've found a good place to be, and also much warmer than where I am right now. Uh, yeah, so what is the last movie you saw? The last movie I saw was the terrific Blade Runner, but before that, I actually uh, re-watched The Prestige for the 30th time or so. One of my favorites. All hail Christopher no- Nolan and all of his glory. All hail. Stand well, up. I know that we are really excited to get into this movie that we will be looking at today that is Blade Runner and we will be taking a look at it in just a moment so if you haven't seen this movie there will be spoilers ahead so right after these messages we'll be starting a recap welcome to the Flashback Flicks retro movie podcast I'm Ricky I'm Grayson and every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we missed things we loved and things we want to see again Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals like you. Well, I know we're coming back from break, but did you ever say what your last movie was, Nathan? Well... The last movie that I watched, personally, was actually the sequel, the follow-up to this movie, Blade Runner 2049, and it is, I gotta say, one of the rare examples of a movie that takes a cult classic, an old cult classic movie that people love, and brings it back and adds a lot to it, and it's something that, after watching this movie, I really recommend that as a follow-up. It is... Deeply respectful to the source material and add some awesome games on top of it. But today we're going to be talking about the original 1982's Blade Runner, the respected science fiction classic based on Philip K. Dick's 1962 novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, starring Harrison Ford, Rucker Hire, Sean Young, Edward James Olmos, released in 1982, and grossing $27 million with the placement of 29 in the box office that year, 
Ahead of it was the movie Victor Victoria at number 28, and at 30 was Fast Times at Ridgemont High. The number one movie that year was E.T., the extraterrestrial, the extraterrestrial another fantastic science fiction classic that, uh, you know... It's a lot more mainstream, so, you know, by another, by, by just another small name director. Uh, the IMDb rating for this movie was 8.1, of course, on Rotten Tomatoes. The tomato meter has a 90%, and the audience score is 91%, so big agreement there. Uh, for awards, this movie won plenty of awards. Uh, it won at the Academy Awards Best Art Direction and Best Visual Effects. It has... The Golden Globes Awards nominee for Best Original Score. It won three BAFTAs, had five BAFTAs nominated, and four Saturn Awards. On the AFI Top 100 Movies list, last updated is at 97, and among the top science fiction movies, it is number six. And on the Top Thrills list, it is number 74. So this movie is very, very well supported and loved by the by its audiences. So, Brian and Dustin, Dustin first, have you seen this movie before? What were you expecting? I got a weird answer here. I watched this movie for the first time when I was in middle school. Uh, My my dad, uh, who rules, decided just to show me, you know, Pink Floyd the Wall, uh, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, uh, Total Recall, and Blade Runner. He said, you know what, son, you need to watch these movies not caring if I was mature or not. Well, that explains a lot, as you are such a big ideas guy. All these amazing science fiction and dystopian movies that just have so many big, important ideas in them. That, that Oh, yeah, movies that make it. you feel really good, like Pink Floyd Ryan, Wall. how about you? <laughs> or Reservoir Dogs. Or... Real feel-good movie. Yeah. <laughs> I Ryan, actually just, I, I just had an epiphany over here. For years, I've been trying to figure out how to explain to Russ how it is I can watch war movies over and over again, Saving Private Ryan, uh, We Were Soldiers, Black Hawk Down. Like Those are movies I'll just toss on you know, to have on. And he's like, oh, these are crazy, depressing movies. Like how, how can you just rewatch stuff like that? And this is it. He grew up on those movies. I can't tell you how many times I watched Gettysburg as a kid. Like, my dad would watch, this is it, this is why. I was either watching yeah, the History yeah. Channel, Apocalypse Pl- Now, uh, Gettysburg, uh, Platoon. Yeah, this is it, this is the reason. And I, I never put that together until right now. So, Russ, here is your answer. This is the reason I can watch those movies over and over again is because it's what I grew up on. Um, it makes so much now, sense now. <laughs> now, I will tell you this. I do not remember the first time I watched Blade Runner. But I will tell you this. And I hate it when people ask me, hey, what's your favorite book? What's your favorite movie? What's your favorite CD? Because that's such a, you know, or album. What, that's such a loaded question. I mean, it depends on mood and whatever. But if you put my feet to hot coals and demanded an answer to this, Blade Runner is probably my favorite movie of all time. And I, I've watched this movie, I don't know how many times. I've got the multitude of varying editions that have come out over time. I even came so close to buying a Blu-ray edition that came with the Little Police squad car just to get the squad car i already had the blu-ray i already had it digitally i had no reason to buy it other than that little squad car and i was like "Mm, maybe i need that's tempting uh i've got the book uh 
Um, I yeah. Anyway, I dig this movie. It's great. Uh, I can't wait to get into it. Well, Dustin, as someone who was very young and watching The Matrix as as Love my introduction Matrix. movie for, for that Matrix. way, uh, I can I can definitely I, I can definitely understand this the, the feeling of uh, growing up with movies that have big ideas about what the future in society is. Because, yeah, it's man, weird. Be like this <laughs> if you if you watch this when 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 you're when, when when you're that age, it's gotta gotta implant some thoughts. But for me, this was actually something that I only first watched it a couple of years ago when I was actually just coming right out of college and uh, had had it recommended right as Blade Runner twenty forty nine was about to come out. And so for me, those two movies are very interlinked. That I actually watched this movie almost as a preparatory thing to then go watch. Uh, Blade Runner 2049 with uh, Russell Guest and a bunch of other people from the office that we both work at. So it was kind of a cool experience to see those two things together. Oh, boy, does it hold up. Oh, yeah, you're talking about, like, seeing the movie as an adult, someone who has matured and figured out how the world works. As we are all really excited to get into this movie, I'm just going to give a spoiler warning before we can move on any further. We will be having a full recap and summary, so if you haven't gone to see this movie before, it is such a great movie, I can't recommend it highly enough. Go watch it, then come back, listen through these messages that are right up ahead, and we will get right into this review. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. Thank you, Classic Film Jerks. Uh, that was so old-timey, but now let's go ahead and get into the recap with Brian Fry-me. No, that was bad. Go ahead. In the future, replicants, machines created to do man's dirty work off-planet, have started to rebel. They are outlawed on Earth, and special detectives called Blade Runners are trained to retire or kill any on-planet. Deckard, a retired in a totally different, is the best Blade Runner still and is pulled back into the fray to locate four skin jobs, as they are derogatorily called. He applies his trade and finds a fifth replicant in a beautiful young woman working at the Tyrell Corporation, the same corporation that creates the replicants themselves. A spark of interest exists between Deckard and the replicant Rachel. As Deckard struggles with his job and his feelings for Rachel, she herself struggles with what she is. Eventually, Deckard retires two of the Renegade replicants and succumbs to his feelings for Rachel. All the while, Roy, the combat model and leader of the Renegade replicants, hunts for his creator, Tyrell himself. Eventually, having the pleasure model, Triss, track down one of his peers in J.F. Sebastian. Once Roy and Triss convince Sebastian to help arrange a meeting with Tyrell, they do not get the answers they're looking for and kill him. Deckard tracks down J.F. while Roy is away and kills Triss. Roy Roy arrives and fights Deckard until inexplicably saving his life before his lifeline expires. Deckard, knowing Rachel is in danger from being retired too, races home to find her well but with a subtle message. The movie closes as they both go on the run. Great summary, Brian. This is a very complicated movie plot. It's something that, for me, reminds me of watching a series of TV episodes, in a way, where there are big portions of the movie that uh, flow as very much a detective story, where you're shown things, 
not explained clearly until you find them out later in different very episodic stages of how this develops. Uh, we have Harrison Ford starring as Rick Deckard. We have Rutger Hauer star. We have Rutger Hauer as Roy Batty, the replicant leader. We have Sean Young as Rachel, the love interest. We have Edward James Olmos as Gaff, M. Emmett Walsh as Bryant, Daryl Hannah as Pris, William Sanderson as J.F. Sebastian, Brian James as Leon Kowalski, and Joe Turkle as Dr. Eldon Tyrell. All important, all doing their jobs in the movie so well that uh, it was, it is difficult to pull out. Who's who's starring? Who is who's featured? And when they're featured, they are stealing the scene in almost every scene. Um, you you have, uh, for instance, I was not familiar with the actress Sean Young aside from this movie. But aside from the um, bizarre nineteen fifties hairstyle and the best wardrobe in the entire movie, uh, and also her character having. The, the name spelled Rachel in the worst way. Why do you need that extra A? We don't need it. But aside from that, like she steals the scene, and the, the, it's it's almost as if there's too much there's too much star power, and it's not it's not ego star power. It's just like everybody is 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 taking your attention away every time because you want to learn more about these characters every single time you see. Them. I guarantee I guarantee you you've seen her at yeah. least one uh, more thing. Well, uh, okay, well what is it? Maybe I haven't seen it. Finkel. Einhorn. Einhorn is Finkel. Ace Ventura. <laughs> okay, then yes, I have seen it. It's kind of a wild thing with her, too, because, yeah. you know, obviously her is Rachel in this, but um, I was telling somebody earlier today that we were going to be doing this podcast, and the thing that connects this movie with what is likely my favorite book of all time, which is Frank Herbert's Dune, is she actually plays the female lead in Cheney in 1984's uh, the the Lynch Dune. So she's literally been in two of the most influential fictional tales of of you know for me, uh, and that's without it, it's basically by mistake. I'm not saying it's a mistake to cast her in both. I'm just saying that it, it happy coincidence might be the better way to say it. That she actually connects what is my favorite movie with what is my favorite. That's a very different movie, and I will say regarding the name spelling, it's biblical, and the point is that it's biblical, and that's related to twenty forty nine, not this movie really so much. Uh, no spoilers for that movie, but it's important. <laughs> Imagine saying something innocuous and then just being completely dunked on by Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I. It, it was an observation because as part of as, as part of watching, you know, get, getting ready for this podcast, rewatching Blade Runner, I also rewatched Blade Runner 2049. And that name came up in that movie being brought up by a character in that direct sense. And I just went, oh, my gosh, was this planned? That's all amazing. I'm just, I'm just in the poster and, uh, of getting dunked on by you with having the 2049 that. knowledge. <laughs> but hey, fine, it's a fine name. Rachel's a fine name. <laughs> I'm I am basking in the glow of having watched two movies with fantastic soundtracks. Aside from this, aside from the main cast, this film was created by director Ridley Scott, who is famous for, of course, the Alien franchise as well as 19. 19- 77's The Duelists, 
1985 Legend and various other movies that are just incredibly well-known. G.I. Jane. Gladiator. Uh, Gladiator, Black Hawk Down, Prometheus, The Martian. Just so many great movies uh, by this by this director. And you can just see the artistry in everything that's in here, um, both by the director and by the incredible, incredible production designer Lawrence G. Paul and art director David Snyder. Just really amazing, really amazing effects work and art in everything in this movie. Uh, it, it, when you say everything in this movie, and it, it's hard to ever talk before Brian here, which this is his favorite movie, but um, I was enthralled by it, by watching it. I was uh, under its spell both times. As I said, I was trying to take notes to talk about stuff, and all I could do was watch. Uh, and then I switched it over to watching it on my tablet instead of on my TV, and I still like was holding the tablet in front of my face. Um, it, 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 it just <laughs> captures you in a way that I wasn't expecting you just want to say <laughs> enhance enhance yeah, uh, every little detail 45, stop center stop <laughs> uh yeah you do want to do that i uh jeez oh, <laughs> um, yeah, what do you start with man <laughs> well there's there are a couple things here um as far as visual effects go there is you could go forward in time 20 years and i am still more entranced by the segue scenes of the world they are living in they did a better job of the city in this than they did of coruscant in all of the prequel star wars like the sense of um scale the the it, it was all at once a sense of desolation and i don't mean desolation in an empty way like so much of something that there's nothing left. Um, and that's that was really the idea behind Coruscant being a city planet in Star Wars. So I, I just felt like how they filmed this, how they showed, and it was minimalist for the most part. Like they didn't go with grandiose backdrops. They went with a very uh, epic, uh, you know, the Vangelis doing the music behind showing something as simple as a hover car flying to a police station or to the Tyrell Corporation gave you this sense of, of grandeur. And I'll tell you, you know, other movies have tried to do it. Like uh, uh, Highlander 2, you know, took a giant dump all over that idea with the whole, like, you know, atmosphere shield. I felt like that was a straight, you know, carbon copy, you know, cut and paste. We're going to try to do a Blade Runner. So it's, I feel like movies in the future failed at doing what Blade Runner did and Blade Runner still holds up. This is a movie that interestingly in researching it, Philip K. Dick, author of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, on which this movie is based, was not such a fan of a lot of the earlier drafts of the screenplays, and quite late in his life was very resistant to this movie going forward as it was based on what he'd seen. But the but the effects company showed him a cut of all of the pure effects scenes of all the city and the the way things were working and apparently this alone without seeing anything else about the movie totally sold philip k dick on allowing this movie to go forward in that way that he said this is exactly what i was imagining in my head this is an amazing representation of, of the world that i was picturing and the thing that i want to 
call attention to is just the fact it feels like a world in a way that a lot of other movies just don't quite capture. It's not merely an idea of some cityscape or something. Every detail has been worked out to work with everything else in a way that feels like not everyone is doing the same thing. There are so many different scenes with completely different environments, so you never feel like, oh, every place is like everywhere else, and you have these giant buildings that have a bit very dominating feel, but then it goes all the way down to the tiny scale of various street scenes. So it's, it's cool stuff. I'm completely with you. I am completely with you here. You have these pseudo-pyramids where the corporations and the rich people live, and you also have people live in abandoned hotels because there's space. Because if you could, you would have left to go off-world. And I didn't realize until my second rewatch that there's Harry Krishnas walking around the streets. You have gangs of people dressed like Ash from Pokemon. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. And the crowding the street because the crosswalks don't even work. The walk and don't walk are flashing at the same time. You've got bicycle gangs wearing rice paddy hats. You've got buses full of old people like heading to cribbage. There's all types of people here. The, uh-huh. Think of the bar. This is where he meets the connection for the snake woman. And it's filled with like debutantes. It's like a masquerade. There's all sorts of levels of people here. And you can feel like this place exists. I think one of the things that really gets me about it too is, you know, being someone like this movie came out two years before I was born. So, you know, I'm not going to, you know, plant any flags or stake any claims on this being a, a generational film for me. Uh, but I did grow up with everything that tried to take, and I don't mean this in a negative way, tried to take something from this movie to, to enrich their own. So you have Judge Dredd, you have Fifth Element. Like There are so many movies that borrowed pieces of this, of what made this such an experience, and tried to use those pieces to enrich their own films. And I think that's why I understand the initial critic, you know, the the initial uh, reviews of this weren't all that great. But, you know, like something or like an artist that wasn't truly appreciated in its time, it didn't take too long before people were like, wait a second, this is awesome. And it's also irritating, but also part of the, the history of this film that there have been so many cuts of this to say, okay, you know, this is this person's vision. This is. This was released for this reason. And yeah. in the end, you know, if you get it all together, you're like, ah, gosh, what a story. And it, sometimes you're not even sure what story is being told. There are wonderful reasons that this is the movie that everybody compares back to whenever someone does a science fiction cityscape. Uh, yeah, a science fiction cityscape. Um, there was a tension paid by uh, Rid- Riddler Soft. What's his name? Ridley Scott. Oh, that's right. Ridley? <laughs> there was attention paid by Ridley Scott. <laughs> the Riddler Scott. The Riddler! Riddler Scott. <laughs> uh, R- Ridley Scott paid attention. Now that is Let a very different movie. When he's shooting these, um, we, we're 50 floors up and you see this thing. Um, the, uh, the incredible advertisement blimp, or like the, the, the cell product Zeppelin come through, that this place is deep for its height. Not deep underground, just it's deep with so much stuff. And uh, you would almost wish that, I know you mentioned it being episodic, you'd almost wish that, like, what are the other tales of this place? Do we even know if this place has a name? Uh, I'll I'll put a Brian on that one. Uh, I think I always assumed it was in L.A., um, 
just based on you know the the West Coast nature of it later on in games. Unfortunately, I am the one without the twenty forty nine knowledge. I'm still yeah. back in the eighties with this, uh, but it still it still takes my breath away, and it is clearly a uh, a point of comparison for. A, a future cityscape and it's not something we're used to seeing and then you push into the depths of these places and what are those smokestacks They're, things uh, the flaming geysers burn off like towers. think about how many times you've seen or, those towers uh, in every dystopian everything. movie like they're related to oil like, drilling Everything. What are those called? Like, they used it in Star Wars, Johnny Mnemonic. I mean, it's, like, there are so many movies that are, like, ooh, I like yeah, it. I don't think like, it's ever quite had the same act as it did for me with this movie. This, um, yeah. This place is run by industry and corporations. Uh, this is not where I think we initially were going. But I will say, a side piece, I don't see much in terms of government. I see corporations running things. And would make me think that a police force is working for the corporations, not for any local municipal government or grander. All I, all, all we know about these, yeah, we got these Republicans, and they were made illegal. So shoot to kill. Shoot to kill is it. That's the law. Not much of justice. I think that I think from a a standpoint of science fiction, you can look at this world being. Everything from gangs in the underworld all the way up, everything is factions. You heard the police chief himself say, you're either cop or you're Ugh. little people. Ugh. Like, that, it, the police... It makes me the sick. Police, yeah. yeah. The police, scary you line. know, the police in this are, you know, their own piece. You know, oh, no choice, huh? No choice, pal. And it, it's it's going to be one of those things that there probably is some some version of government, but, you know... Not to get too, uh, you know, political right now. What isn't influenced by corporations? Yeah, and it's also interesting to note that the Tyrell Corporation does not care about the laws that much. I mean, here they are. There's a Blade Runner from the legal system comes into the company, and they and Tyrell himself puts right in front of him someone he knows is replicant. That's not supposed to be there. Basically, that's not supposed to be there. Who he is supposed to kill. And in this, you know, incredible power move just, you know, makes him feel like he can't do anything about it. Um, it's it's kind of kind of amazing. That, that scene, I thought that first. Uh, that scene, what I thought about was, and I think this is, this is the answer to the question that I had, which was, this Voight-Omp test that they had, what created the replicants? Why is he so curious about the test? Why wasn't his answer? It's because he does whatever he wants. <laughs> he doesn't answer to anyone else. And that... That is precisely what you want in this type of world: is to be able to do what you well, I th- want. I definitely think he's. I definitely think he's pushing the envelope. Like the reason that he had Rachel there was, you know, I want to see best of the best test my best work thus far, and tell me whether or not it's a replica. And uh, I think it's also worth noting that this movie took place in November of last year. Yeah. <laughs> I've yep. always loved that. Yep. Like literally November of last year, I was like walking around. I was like, "All right, guys, Blade Runner time. Where are the replicants out? <laughs> Somewhere out there, there's a replicant releasing a dove in, with yeah. his dying. So where, where's my hover car? Words. Is at? I want because <laughs> I'd I would do it as soon. I'm sorry. I 
Um, I don't want to see hover cars until people can demonstrate that they can drive with autopilot (laughs) in an intelligent way. All I know is the first thing (laughs) that I will do upon earning a hover is play the soundtrack of this movie while driving. Well, the first thing I'm going to do is try to barrel roll. That's the first thing I probably try in any vehicle, honestly. Can I do a barrel roll? (laughs) And if I can't, who's the person I can find that can? Someone can. Oh, dear. There's a there is a moment early in this movie where they're flying around and the music swells up and it's kind of beautiful and amazing and Deckard looks around and has this <laughs> look on his face like you know this is kind of cool and amazing and I just got to think like hasn't haven't they seen this before your reaction is in, your reaction and the music are both implying that this is some new experience they're having but clearly well, you've had well, this, this guy's experience a street before dweller. right like you have to assume that some people have never left the circle in the movie that we see him in, does his car does not, not fly? It it doesn't fly, but it doesn't mean it can't. That's true. Okay, he is he is a wheel yeah. wheels on the ground. Okay, and maybe in his they're like as a Blade Runner. Sure. Before. Yeah. Well, maybe it's just been a while. I mean, he's been enjoying retirement, like not the shoot him in the head retirement, but the the yeah, I get yeah. to drink. Maybe yeah. maybe he's, he's reminiscing. He's, oh, I think it's also um, worth noting. I I realized that one of you had made reference to this earlier. You can in fact buy the whiskey glasses that Deckard uses in this movie, but they are obscenely expensive. I have looked into this. It is something I wanted. It is not fiscally responsible to purchase. Well, what about that shot glass that, like, he balances on his solar plexus? I want that. I'm I'm sure that... I feel like that was... You probably prepared. don't want that. You want the whiskey glass. The whiskey glass is nice. I feel like it was a very general uh, shot glass that he had uh, Well, this is where I have to say... I have to say it right here, which is I know that his car either doesn't fly or, or maybe can't fly because late in the movie, way later in the movie, for no reason at all, he's just sitting in his car and a flying cop comes to him and says, hey, what are you doing? And Harrison Ford's like, I'm, I'm a Blade Runner. I'm doing my job. Here's my number. Uh, and two seconds later, the flying cop says, oh, okay, you're clear. See you later. And just zip, flies away. And when he flies away, you can see, like, people holding fire extinguishers and just blasting down. And you can see the cables coming from the sky. It is uh, maybe not the best work from the special effects team. <laughs> <laughs> you're either cop or you're little people, man. <laughs> yeah, certainly certainly some some awesome and not-so-awesome car flying effects going on going on here but one of the one of the things that i love about almost all of those flying car scenes is they are accompanied by some music that is just as we've referenced before something that works it into your head it works its way into your ear and just will not leave almost not even the melody just the feel and the emotional emptiness yet beauty at the same time that this score amazingly evokes dustin we were talking earlier before this started and you mentioned you had some interesting feelings about this score sure okay yeah i'll tell you uh there were two moments where i thought the score um they were duds they were like what on earth one of them was the first flying car sequence into um it is when Deckard is being flown by Gaff to... This would have been the Corporation Pyramid on the way to Tyrell to meet the Owl and to meet Rachel. And it is at the, the, the synth piano that, you know, wow, wow, wow. It's just kind of like, 
floating through. You don't know what the melody is because it's just somebody kind of tapping through. And the fir- and and I wrote down in my notes, this sucks. <laughs> and then <laughs> I was just another thing. So that, years ago, upon my oh, second yeah. rewatch, I was go, like, go, oh, go this little, I feel at home in this flying cop car, and I'm here with a fedora wearing edward james almost and it works it really works it's got to have a place somewhere yeah i mean it's it 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 is something that after watching this movie i cannot do anything but go over to my synth piano boot it up plug it into ableton and just start messing around for a little while it's just i i can't i can't not do it or or mess around on my french horn and and play that theme nathan for, for your for your piano did you need to have like it's, eight it's to 12 d batteries because if you did it sounds like a rocking time <laughs> that's the same number of batteries my uh say are uh handheld i don't even know what that was called sega i don't even know when i was introduced to the under the, the places where uh, all of the uh, the people came together where you had Southeast Asia and um, tunes, percussion, uh, flutes, when he meets snake salesman, when he talks to the woman that identifies what the scale is and she's running that out of his out of her fish shop. Like, like that music felt like this is a mixture of all who's left and it felt real. On top of like, oh, there's these crazy parking meters and it's also a tra- it's, it's it's a traffic jam on every street and there's a man walking around with an eagle on his head and uh there's a guy who makes <laughs> snake uh, uh genetics is the wrong word artificial snakes like oh this is a snake scale let me show you the guy who makes snakes like this is just part of the world uh the music helped with that and it was uh i she forever believing that Vangelis or Evangelis or however you say his name wasn't up to the task because he was it's good stuff and you know what else really sets those different cultures apart is the wardrobe that's happening and man this movie this movie is one that has some creative clothing choices all across the board no doubt. i mean you've got everything from plastic clear plastic ponchos to umbrellas with lights on the handles to the most intense shoulder pauldrons that you could ever see i mean you could you could cut yourself on those it's amazing it's a sexiness i didn't think angularity could ever give me oh you look like an hourglass for real okay yeah i'm done <laughs> uh incredible we're talking about rachel here but the, the, her whole imagine trying to wear that outfit and not stand out i mean <laughs> uh deckard caesar immediately oh yeah the woman wearing the fur that's 30 pounds oh, that's probably rachel <laughs> <laughs> trying to blend into this crowd when you are wearing like clothing that sticks out as much as two feet away from your body in several I directions i do think at one point i saw a guy walking down the street and he was in basically like viking furs and i was like i mean multicultural let's go it's this is this is the future the melt the ultimate melting plot melting pot everyone has come together here even the vikings but the bar at what was it teffy's uh where the snake show was the bartender he's still wearing a tux um the the, okay so you remember his name yeah Uh, is it it, no no no, i'm just saying like or i'm just thinking 
you know, everybody's got their thing going. Bartender's like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling that, uh, you know, that old school Vegas. That, yeah, uh, yeah, bow, bow tie or uh, James Bond. Yeah. It. Um, it's good to know that if you wanted to be a time traveler, you could take basically as a guy one piece of clothing, and it would work for like many hundreds of years, probably. Let's go with the Viking horned helmet, which we know is historically accurate. That's the one. Uh, the uh, Tyrell, Dr. Tyrell, with his lavish uh, <laughs> pyramid bedroom. And when J.F. Sebastian's coming to meet him, he puts on the most, uh, like, like cotton terry times a thousand, just a huge white robe with his, uh, his incredible bifocal or trifocal glasses. Um, I thought he had a great look as well. When you when you had the few chances you had to see, I will say that a lot of the uh, Tyrell pieces, his building, his domicile, all those pieces, very 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 Stargate later on. Oh goodness! So what are you saying? Is the Tyrell Corporation actually go old, and there are going to be spaceships landing on those pyramids? Is that how they get off world? <laughs> no, I'm I'm just saying that this is this is another good example of you know where people have borrowed from this movie to make their their future creations because they're like, oh, I like oh, cut yeah. up his jib. We'll do that. Yeah. And as as you mentioned that, I got to call out the architecture of this movie is just so special. There's the, the there's the pyramids that have the amazing offset faces to them that are in the art design, the amazing production design, and there are even then the Frank Lloyd Wright wonderful Aztec looking concrete block house that Deckard lives in and it's just such a fantastic little scene. You know, I'm I'm not an architect. Oh, go ahead. Uh I actually really like Deckard's like I, I like Deckard's style. I like his house. Like I very much uh am in line with what he's got going on. Well and then we have to bring up the eye store. The, the eye market, the completely frozen eye department. I would assume that because he's working in a close to zero, if not sub-zero environment, that there was probably a, uh, a product placement here. There's probably an iPad or something at his front desk saying, you know, leave your information for contact on what you actually need. And that his normal customers do not uh, proceed past that into the uh, cryo room. That's yeah. of this will this will freeze your arm off when you put it in there. I think he really realized what they were when they proved that they weren't. Too Guys, I don't want to embarrass myself on the on my first hosting job. It's not I Town. It's I World. That is the name of his storefront. Still the big it, look. <laughs> it, it wasn't I. Hey, listen, it wasn't IKEA. <laughs> And it wasn't an iPad that they used. I yeah, see. I feel like I feel like we need to keep this going. <laughs> well, I, the iWorld, iWorld is the one that they they discovered right after H World and immediately preceding uh, J World. Does anybody else have any i jokes that they want to push in here? Because I feel like we're really hitting this hard, and we just push the boundaries. Hey, if Apple if if Apple gets big enough, they will. I mean, I mean, think about it. At least one of these off-worlds is that the eye. I world? don't think so. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's that is totally fine. That's very easy to uh, to put those together. All right. Awesome. Uh, well, enough eye jokes. I think for the for the ninth. Let's move on. I'm 
pretty sure we should. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, yes. with that out of the way, I think <laughs> let's move on to some movie supl- superlatives. I what do you think about getting into agree. those? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. Everyone loves this. Let's do it. All right. Well, let's start with you, Dustin. What or who is the MVP for you for this movie? I would like to take a moment to say that part of this movie, a, a, a bunch of this movie is incredible, but there have been some long-lasting um, homages. There's been, there's been documentaries. There's a very special scene at the end, which is, I think we all know it, it is Rucker Howard's Tears in Rain speech, which is known and revered among sci-fi fans as being one of the best moments to happen in sci-fi film history. So because of that, I am going to... Us- place that on the mantle and say, yes, we know that's great. So I'm going to be shifting every additional like superlative that would have been at this place. I'm going to shift it up to the top. So in this case, my MVP would have been Roy Batty, Rutger Hauer, and his acting, specifically his facial uh, responses and short ticks and change in tone. But because I cannot pick him, I'm going to go with my MVP is the actor... William Sanderson, who played um, J.F. Sebastian, thought he was incredible. I thought his makeup was good. Thought his little world that he lived in by like himself was good. His relationship with uh, Dr. Tyrell was a catalyst for the movie going to where it needed to go. Um, on top of that, you got to see. Well, you know, I'll just leave it there. I thought he's incredible. Also, Tennessee boy, born in Memphis, and also he has his Juris Doctorate. He's, he's a lawyer. Well, he never passed the bar. But just one of those little trivia facts for you. So, William Sanderson, MVP. Oh, great choice, great choice. What about you, well, Brent? It's important for me, especially with a lot of movies, uh, when we try to go kind of before our time, to really reference why they are important uh-huh. to the future of film. Back. And you know, the reason this movie, to me, is important, like outside of the fact that I love the movie itself, is so many movies spawned off of it not necessarily as a spawn off as in like the core idea is important (laughs) but because they regarded it highly enough to utilize aspects of it to make their movie better and i'm a huge fifth element fan i'm a big uh, i like the highlander movies i understand 99 percent of it is trash but it is one of those things where when I you know get to reference where they get stuff from, I'm like, oh, it's also this other movie I really enjoyed. I, I'm going to go with Ridley Scott on this. Um, the director, I feel like he really... There's not a soldier out there that didn't have to fight harder for what he wanted from a, from a film. And given the way... Given the way that this movie was pulled in so many di- different directions, and I'm not sure what the date was that people actually got to see uh, the cut that he wanted shown, uh, but I mean, this guy really, really went to bat for this film. I, you know, he, in the end, he filmed everything. Uh, what actually got shown in theaters, on yes. various channels, uh, on DVD, you know, that all came out in in oddball directions, but this guy was the instrumental part in making everything that's available. So if out there, there's a cut that's nine hours long because he's like, hmm, I like what I did. I would watch that nine hour long Blade Runner. And 
I, you know, I've, I know I've got, I know I have the rep of the let's make things I like longer, but, uh, I just think that th- this specifically as a movie, because of the cuts, because of the different variations that have come out and that there's still the following that has been earnest and loyal throughout the entire process of years and this is a world of putting this this is it this is this guy this guy did this and what an analysis and here i was you know not watching cartoons but getting introduced to ridley scott like that (laughs) Um, i'm pretty much following doctrine on this and saying the final cut is the one to watch um there are parts to every variation that I think have merit, but I do think that there are also ones that that left some stuff in that you're just like, uh, yikes! Like, um, it's 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 more about the story arc that needed to be told, and less about the. I'm not even sure the the best way to put this, but the the commercialization. Which is funny to say because you have a movie about corporations and, and you know the story they want told. So uh, you know maybe it all maybe it actually all goes into the lore of Blade Runner that they suffered from a weird reverse hubris of what they're actually telling about uh, in the actual making of the film. So uh, it's it's I would say the final cut is the one that typically is the one I watch often. Um, that being said, this is definitely one of those movies that I watch on television, and Jess is like, why don't you just watch your DVD? And I'm like, shh. That'd be crazy. It's on TV right now. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, look, if you have the inclination to enjoy the varying degrees at which this movie has been produced and released, awesome, more power to you. I recommend it just from a film buff uh standpoint um and if you have not read the book i highly recommend reading the book as i always do but um yeah i'd say final cut is 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 my go-to it's pretty much the the factory standard of where you should watch this but you know i've got them all so i get my pick whenever i watch it those are great answers and you know what brian i totally agree with you this is the kind of movie that if it was twice as long i wouldn't complain at all because this is the sort of movie that there's a plot and there's stuff going on, but as much as that, this is a world that I'm being presented with that I want to live in, and goodness, I just gotta hand it to the art director and production designer, uh, Lawrence G. Paul and David Snyder. They just did fantastic work on this movie in terms of building the incredible complexity of vision that is this world. Up next is the Best Supporting Actor, Justin. Nathan, before you move on from Brian's answer, he mentioned the commercialization. Uh, I told you, Nathan, before we started, that I actually took time um, to count every uh, advertisement, um, and I found several. I'm going to list them out now. Now, uh, in terms of screen time or how many times they're presented, that's not what I'm going for, just the different companies. We have Pan Am, Koss, Cuisinart, Coca-Cola. Johnny Walker is everywhere, especially in Deckard's. I mean, hey, why not, right? Especially in Deckard's uh, apartment. Budweiser and Schlitz and also Sing Tao. So we have uh, Anheuser-Busch, Schlitz, which I think is Minnesota, uh, maybe Wisconsin, and then Sing Tao, which is uh, Asian. Uh, Atari, 
And then my favorite one of these, before we move on to the next MVP, my favorite one was there's a sign that has an advertisement for both Bulova, the high-end watch company, and Dentine, chewing gum. <laughs> so uh, just just on this note that not only did i try to find <laughs> not only did i try to find his whiskey glasses but i was wondering if uh they actually came out with a johnny walker blade runner bottle blade runner so, yeah, just a just would... a tiny 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 tangent uh my grandfather used to collect antique whiskey bottles and like the collective figurines and I was like, this will be the start of mine, the Blade Runner whiskey bottle. That would be Johnny Runner. <clears throat> or, I guess, no, Blade Walker? So, as I said before, I've slid everything up one slot because I, I can't afford to, um, to, to deny the, the limelight that Rucker Howard had. So, uh, Best Supporting Actor, I'm going to go with, it would have been William Sanderson, but we're going to go with the, the actor who played Leon, who is Brian James. Uh, I thought Leon... Anytime you saw him, there was a menacing feel for someone who, in fact, maybe the first lines of the movie are traded between Leon and someone else. Um, and you, I think you know he's a replicant very early, but his responses are very much, um, they are almost emotional. They, it's almost like they programmed Leon to be... Um, somehow combative even if he's following orders and that was done because brian james did a great job doing it uh incredible scene with leon and deckard in the street without intervention from um rachel leon would have killed him uh, i loved the character and i loved uh brian uh brian james portrayal of him also brian james uh if you didn't know him from anything else one of the one of the like fleet commanders in uh, the Fifth Element, uh, kind of a comedic role for him. Uh, I I love him, and I thought he did a great job. Uh, I didn't bump all mine up, so uh, William Sanderson is my supporting. But we share uh, the same, actor. yeah, we share the I, same wavelength, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but JF Sebastian, his piece in this, his you know, uh, cute naivety when it came to like he obviously recognized that they were replicants. He has created his own world within his own, you know, abandoned hotel anyway. Um, he has his own, let me put it to you this way. I appreciate how well the actors portrayed scientists because scientists don't fear the way normal people do their creations. So at no point in time did J.F. Sebastian really think his life was in danger with a combat model and Roy being, and he pegs them out as replicants. Obviously, that makes him a threat to them. So, you know, they could just kill him there. Obviously, they needed him, but still, it's the fascination with their own work. It, it's a very hubris piece. Same when they go to visit Tyrell. He's seeing them. He's like, oh, you should revel in your greatness like he's he's sitting there thinking i made you and and you are wonderful and even though you're here in a very human way to try to gain more than four years life which is just a ludicrous idea in terms of longevity you know why would you want to live longer when you've lived so greatly immediately and then you know 
being surprised at them being killed because that's the wrong answer. It's not about how greatly they lived. It's the fact that they want to live. And it's that hubris, that idea that they don't understand on that level <laughs> because they think on a different yeah. level. Well, for my part in this, I took the best supporting actor a little bit literally. And because he's technically not the starring member of the cast, I did put Rutger Hauer on here uh, just for some of those absolutely incredible moments. Uh, the, the, the speeches and the face acting that's happening and the amazing fight scene that, that, that happens at the end. So just, just incredible. Up next is the hidden gem, an under, underappreciated minor cast or element in this movie, Dustin. Yeah, I'm going to start. Uh, the, the, the hidden gem here for me is M. Emmett Walsh, the actor, as uh, I'll say Chief Bryant. Um, he's just referred to as Bryant, but I assume he is in some type of uh, administrative role. And the, the, I'll, I'll read specifically what I said about him. I don't know how they found someone who could so easily embrace being a scumbag cop in a leadership position, but they did. And it's part of what... what uh, like like Ridley Scott said, this is how we need to have this character be portrayed. He's the one that introduces the derogatory term. He's the one that uh, is always kind of pushing Deckard, um, and he's just a he's just a stuffed suit, and he he makes you someone you love to hate. <laughs> yeah, God, this guy. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's mine. And Emmett Walsh, good job as a very small part. Uh, in terms of acting, but a very huge part in terms of pushing the story forward. Great. How about you, Brian? I freaking love Edward James almost. I feel like he is the yes. quietest, quietest best role in this entire movie. I, I think that you could watch this movie 20 times and not get the origami piece. Um, I, I remember the first time that I watched the director's cut and realizing that the difference between the, the cut I had seen before and then the origami piece mm -hmm. and the fact that he had made a unicorn and then when they actually yep. spliced in the unicorn cut, I was just like, ah, this is mess like this is messing with my brain right now. It I'm gonna have changes to like, really... the whole movie. Oh, my gosh. And and you know, like uh, like Dustin said earlier, I'm I'm gonna you know bust one of my next superlatives up, but my favorite quote of the movie is, "It's too bad she won't live," but then again, who does? Like he gets it, man. This guy is like, I want to know what his rank and position is with the police department because I almost feel like. He's got to be a, the, the Blade Runner that was like just quietly backing up Harrison Ford to make sure he didn't screw up. And then also, he was somehow more empathetic. And we'll get into the whole, you know, is Deckard a, an android too? But I almost feel like he was more empathetic to the situation in the end of everything than Deckard was. So I, I, I feel like almost his character is in its very essence, the hidden gem because there's so much to think about his character. Yeah. He stands at the edges in a lot of scenes looking on in a way, which 
between his wardrobe, which with the cane and everything, he's just such a striking, you know, presence in these scenes. But he looks on in a way that you're looking, you feel like he knows more than he's letting on. And he's picking up Deckard and doing these tasks, but you feel like he's not serving his higher-ups so much as they're putting the right guy to connect the dots together or something. It's really interesting. And I am right, I am I, agreeing with you on that hidden gem with, with almost just really, really great seeing him here. And moving on, we love all these actors we've been talking about, so many great parts, but if you had to recast one of them, who would you replace in it? It's almost as if the timing Justin? is too perfect here. Let me, uh, let me separate what I'm about to say with something else. I, um, the first thing I looked at was, I looked up the most popular actresses of the 70s and 80s just to see if there was anybody else to fit in. And I noticed very few, um, very few black or Latina actresses. And I, I even started looking for uh, Asian actresses, and I realized that if one of the replicants was somehow more diverse, or if there was something aside from what we saw, that might be interesting. That's all I'll say there. Who do we recast? Gaff. Gaff sucks. And this is what <laughs> I'm here to say. I know y'all love Gaff. Gaff sucks. Completely superfluous character. Does not do anything that couldn't be done by someone else. Um, here's my recast. Edward James Olmos, sure, fine. He's got a he's got I've got a mustache, he's got a mustache, I respect that. He wears a fedora, he he walks with a cane, he makes origami. I make origami. I know I don't make matchstick men, but this guy is driving me nuts, so this is really a critique on the character, but if we have to change something, it's not going to be Edward James almost. It's going to be, uh, at the time, 1982, an 18-year-old John Leguizamo playing a more brash and upbeat version of like a, a Blade Runner that's like coming into his own and pushing the old guy to be better. Not some, he describes him as a brown noser. Like, not, not, not some brown noser, like some, some guy that's really ah. about to like push the limits of what can be done. That I like. Oh yeah. Gaff as presented. To me, forgettable, confusing. The character in a movie I'd most like to see removed in my entire life. Oh God. wow. <laughs> and guess what? Uh, if you want, John Leguizamo can do origami. <laughs> I also thought about this. Instead of uh, instead of going younger, what if we went older? What if Gaff was George Carlin, who's just like cracking wise the whole time, who's like making jokes about how Deckard sucks and like oh I fall in love with a replicant, whatever. Like just literally anything to make <laughs> Gaff matter to me. Now, you guys gave great points as to why oh maybe he's the man for the job. This that and the other, and I was just like rolling my eyes so hard they fell down the stairs. No, I... Gaff to me sucks, <laughs> and I will never like him. And that—that's my. If you recast it into something more exciting, then maybe I'm down. But for right now, that's my answer. <laughs> I, I would I would say in in, in a defense of that point, 
I think the whole point in his character was the subtlety that the captain didn't know if Deckard still had the juice and Gaff's initial position going to get him and everything was of lethargy. Like he's like, why am I doing this? I can do this job. This guy wants him instead. I don't like it. That's the reason Gaff keeps letting him get his ass kicked before he intervenes because he doesn't care anything for Deckard outside of the fact that he sees the one entry position where Deckard gives a shit. And then he's like, all right, this guy is worthy of my respect. I've seen what he's able to do. Perhaps I was wrong. And then gives a pass at the end. I really like subscribing to what you just said. But I won't do it because Gaff sucks and forever now you and you and me you and me Brian will have this as the thing. Okay. That, nope. <laughs> this is this is what we don't agree as on. As long as you don't uh, as long as you don't attack the new Battlestar Galactica we're good. <laughs> Edward James almost more like Edward James too late. Yeah, and, and that is that is the other reason why it almost stands out to me because He's going to be captaining. <laughs> I, I, yeah, and, and we talked oh, about man. Battlestar Galactica yep. before the show, but like, it, it is nothing against the actor, which is why I chose to recast it, because I, it, it's about the character, the way that he was yeah. presented. Um, and actually, the quote he presented, I wrote down as one of the ones I would want to say. I think it's a great quote. But, um, you know, if you ask me to make a, an origami goldfish, I can get one knocked out in two minutes. So, Well, I'll take there. <laughs> What about uh, you, so, Brian? You know, I had a hard time with this. Obviously, with the love I have for this movie, I don't really want to recast anything. Uh, and it's funny because of you know the whole epiphany from the beginning of the show. I was thinking of uh, Kevin Conway uh, playing Brian James's character, and uh, I used to think that I had a weird spelling of Brian, but then I saw him and I was like, okay, maybe I should stop complaining. Um, Brian. Yeah. So anyway, Kevin Conway actually plays the sergeant uh, in Gettysburg. Uh, he is uh, uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain's uh, sergeant who uh, uh, takes a hit. Anyway, um, I like him as a rough and tumble scrapper, and that is what Brian James's or uh, yeah, Brian James's character was. So I was just trying to think of people in that ballpark age range that I also like that if I'm going to change somebody out, uh, there are so many characters you can't touch in this. And I was like, okay, mm -hmm. well, let's go with the muscle. Uh -huh. And, you know, the muscle is typically interchangeable. I wouldn't choose to change right. anybody in this. But, yeah, I was thinking, what if you had him, like, just this, like, you know, kind of uh, rough-and-tumble Irish gentleman uh, that they chose to yeah. to mold this uh, this replica after, and that might be fun. It would have been fun. It would have been fun. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. And for my pick, adding a little bit of extra fun is actually what I was what I was kind of thinking on here because I feel like this movie has a lot of characters who are often weird in a way but it's it's always very understated very subtle they're 
they're always cast as very serious, very focused, single-minded people. But what if there was someone who gave a little bit more of that sort of human flavor in, in into things, or at least you know, push it, pushing some of the uh, the comedic boundaries a little bit? What if we had a Jeff Goldblum <laughs> in here, for example, introducing in, in, introducing the plot to Decker as Bryant, the captain, in that oh. whole introduction scene? That that for me is a little bit of a weak link in this movie. The introduction of the plot and what Decker is doing. I felt like it's very interesting, and there's a lot of world-building information in it, in it. But I would love to have a little bit more energy and uh, uh, explaining yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, a little bit of how the replicants are uh, doing doing this. It, it would be yeah, great. see what you're doing. <laughs> that would be great. Um, but then you'd like that character because it's Goldblum, <laughs> and I don't think you're supposed to like that character. <laughs> But that's a good one. Uh, uh, the little people. <laughs> life, uh, life uh, finds a way. <laughs> I never would have. <laughs> All right. Well, in a movie where every single frame is amazing, can you figure out what a single best shot is? I chose mine. Um... Because of a combination of things, but I'll just I'll just I'll just go ahead and lay it out. I think um, there were several best shots, but the one I like the best that kind of represents where they were at the time was when Zora, when Replicant Zora is gunned down by Deckard, running through the panes of glass. That you, you take a shot through the lung. That those guns are high impact. You see him miss a shot, and there's an explosion. So this 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 snake charmer woman is busting through the city and is breaking through. There's all neon around, and it's all very uh, modern Japanese in terms of brightness in the middle of a cold, dark, rainy day or night. And you see her bust down these glass. She gets shot, and then she gets back up, and he has to shoot her again. By the way, he's a pretty good shot as far as. Uh, as most action movies go, he he hits most of his shots, uh, so it took two to take her down, and the slow motion of it, um, and the lights, and the end of what I would consider that shot is, is her body falling down, and it pans up real quick, and you see Leon witness her death, so it was it was meaningful to the group of replicants. Um, that's my shot, is, is that slow-mo, um, uh, what's the word, retirement of Zora. That's what I got. Excellent. Excellent, excellent choice. Just incredibly striking. Also from oh, the yeah, wardrobe department yeah. there. From, with <clears throat> the, yeah, yeah, with the, with the poncho. How about, how about you, Doug? How about you, Brian? I like what the is your favorite front shot on shot of the police cruiser taking him to the police station in the very beginning of this movie. Now I understand this is from a still frame directive, just a one picture piece, but it it really is that whole hover scene as it comes into focus, going to the music adds that that piece. Like that's that's a hallmark of Blade Runner for me. 
Absolutely. And what I'm going to pick is actually very close to that, um, basically another part of that scene, which, I mean, that whole flight is just amazing as they're flying through the city. But there's a shot that's looking down on this huge cylindrical building that is covered in wiring and greebling and, and plumbing and who knows all, all what. And below, the city streets are illuminated and you see this tiny little cop car flying through the air over it, and it's just, wow, the depth in this shot is crazy. Your wow kind of sounded like a uh, sci-fi engine kind of revving down, like engine braking. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> maybe, maybe, I, maybe I should be a, uh, a Foley artist. <laughs> yeah, ma- yeah, make the sound of an apple by biting into an onion. Yeah, that, that sound. <laughs> It'd be a fun job. I, I always. It would be a fun job. Yeah. <laughs> hilarious job. <laughs> All right. Well, best shots bleeding into best scenes. Dustin, what is your so best many. full scene? I it's, think it's we. Like, I think we might know. It's unfair, man. It's unfair to talk about uh, the best scene when it's uh, Let me let me give a little preamble. I didn't plan. Uh, there's a movie called The Great Gatsby with uh, is there? Leonardo DiCaprio, which is. There's a whole bunch of scenes that are just smushed together, and none of them are great, and it's just a big <laughs> smush of bright lights, and I don't like it. This is a movie full of dark scenes and bright lights and ostriches being walked through the street and an Egyptian snake. <laughs> a whole bunch of stuff that's just incredible. Um, the best scene is uh, Tears and Rain. It is uh, th- that, the, that monologue that he gives is... Um, something that is worth watching over and over and over. Um, I and, and that's the culmination of a scene, you could say. Like, that's a moment. It's a culmination of the cat and mouse chase scene, which is just uh, incredibly thrilling. And uh, it, 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 it gives you anxiety for... I don't even think Harrison Ford has a line. He just is running from a superior predator and that scene there, there are scenes that i will rewatch over yeah. and over if i pull it up on youtube at any time um last samurai when mm. the the first time the samurai come through the fog-filled forest and the and the and the japanese army is just afraid of them uh agent smith versus neo the first time in the subway uh the space battle over the moon of endor you you gotta watch it you gotta, you, you gotta watch it. And if I saw Ray Batty, Ray or Roy? I think it's Ray. Roy. 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 Pretty sure it's Ray. Um, no, no, no. Okay, so Roy <laughs> Batty uh, chasing a scared out of his mind Deckard. Um, it is, inc- it's yeah. just an incredible scene. And it ends with, there's not enough, I I don't even, it's like what, uh, when, when Fry was trying to do his, um, his recap, there's almost, you almost don't want to talk about it. So we'll just say, Hey, uh, all you, all you listeners at the round table, watch that scene, tears and rain. And if you have the, if you have the time, watch what happens before it, because it's just incredible. That's my recommendation. It is it is a really neat scene. And I do want to hold here because I think it's so integral to this movie because 
the replicants that Deckard is hunting behave in a really weird way toward the end, where they have so many opportunities to just kill him, and they don't. And it seems like they're trying to accomplish something else and imply that maybe they're trying to get some idea across uh, that, you know, so Deckard is totally terrified that whole scene, but it's kind of interesting to me that at the very end, um, Roy gives him some idea of, like, you know, there's no point in me actually finally killing you because I'm trying to leave a mark on this world and I'm going to give you some some knowledge by fighting you in this terrifying way and and set you and set you down with this experience about why what this world and the Tyrell Corporation and these regulations have done to us is, are just so terrible. It's just a really fascinating, Literally, fascinating thing. Literally, the goes. song More Human Than Human by Rob Zombie was made off of the Tyrell Corporation's, yeah, the Tyrell, their logo about being more human than human. So it's like, this, this was literally, like, they yep. are showing the, the compassion piece, trying to change minds that we're not just unsentient beings that are slaves. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I we didn't actually get to what your best scene was, yeah. uh, Fry. So my best scene is Pris dying when he shoots her doing the acrobatic moves. There is not a move, or there's not a scene in a movie that still freaks me out like that scene. Like even rewatching it for this podcast, and I've seen this movie so many times. That scene where she gets shot and just starts freaking out, I'm, like that still freaks me out. Like I yeah, good call. It is. It is probably the scene that resonates more from the first time I saw it because I remember being like, oh my God, ah, look at this. And he shoots her again and she's still doing it. It's like, ah, the same way that, um, you know, Kurt Russell and the thing, like it's still going, ah, it's still going. Like I, I just, I, I remember that. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh, like this isn't a horror movie, <laughs> but that scene still freaks me out. It's probably the only genesis scene i have from you know not really remembering the first time i watched it but i remembered that yeah it stuck with you for so long yeah just visceral in a way that's just yeah incredible. Uh, and her scream the screech as she's attacking it's like and that that is a lot of a lot of books describe and screams she as blood curdling that is blood curdling now she might have in the end she might have but you'll, you'll never she know had, that. she had him. And so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've, we, we've just seen a scene of, uh, of Roy, the mountaining Tyrell. So we know that they're, that they're into crushing heads and she gets very close to that. It's, uh, it, it, is, it is disturbing and riveting and visceral in a, in a, in a crazy way. 
and and that previous scene is actually what I'm what I'm going to bring up as as my note for best scene in this movie in which the the scene where Roy Batty comes in and demands from Tyrell you need to give us more life and Tyrell spins this crazy crazy excuse for why he can't do that first he starts on some sort of technical issue where he's trying to pretend like oh we can't do it at all we can't do it at all obviously that that doesn't work and daddy doesn't believe it for one second of course not they could they could make them live longer so then he moves over to the regulations well the government won't let us do that you can't live any longer and again daddy's you know that's that's totally ridiculous I mean, JS is right in the room with them, and this guy is making replicant toys all over the place, and we know that Tyrell is experimenting on Earth with them, so obviously that's not true either. And so finally he gives this crazy quote that is just utterly, utterly insane. The light that burns twice as bright burns for half as long, and you have burned so very, very brightly, Roy. It is... I love that. Everything part. about that. I know how crazy it is. And I just love crazy it. Crazy, in the way. In the way that you think about how this corporation treats the rest of the world, yeah, and 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 their worldview. We control you. We allow you to do this, and you should thank us for every second, of of of, of your life and and your extra strength. And for that reason, because of what we've given you, you don't deserve to live any longer. And by the end of that scene, it's like, yep, crush his head in. This is this is this is what needs to happen. Another example so of it's pretty um, amazing. Rutger Rutger Hauer kind of looks like a uh, a um, Lost Boys Dracula in this moment <laughs> when he, uh, and, and his and his. Uh, sorry, I have a habit of calling vampires Draculas for stupid dummy effect, but he looks incredible and the lighting's so good and his his facial features there's almost a hint there's almost a hint of like regret that he what he's doing that he shouldn't be doing what he's doing but he's got himself on this path um most regrettable afterwards is that did you have to kill sebastian did you have to kill jf sebastian i guess but man he was just much, such a fan favorite for me that i didn't want that to happen to him. i i tend to think that the reason that happened <laughs> yeah. was because yeah. that's not the audience that needed the mercy like there's a calculation that still happens within I'm going to say quote unquote machines and when mercy happened it was against someone who had no mercy toward him not to the ones who were frankly on their side oh cool that is cool yeah it's interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. it's good to be on a podcast with yeah. a number one fan of a movie yeah. it's, it's... <laughs> I have watched this once or twice <laughs> <laughs> yeah just incredible hubris from from the Tyrell Corporation for that. Uh, yeah. So, and we move on from piece to piece to piece, where where this uh, this movie has just in spades things to choose from. And here's another one: best wardrobe and makeup. Dustin, what would you pick? Not going to choose Rachel's uh, wardrobe because because it's a it's clearly an iconic thing throughout the entire movie um so i'm gonna give my second best option which is uh daryl hannah um 
there when any time when you first see her she is walking down the street in a i guess i would i would have assumed a wig but that might be her actual hair um and she she snuggles up in some trash like uh like homeless people sometimes do and uh she's there on a mission now rewatching this movie i didn't i didn't pick up on the mission right away i picked up on just how is this going to play out um but i think um the eccentricity of her outfits um her makeup and uh her hair uh really work and um i i guess what i can say is maybe that's i'm being biased because she's interacting the most with my favorite uh with my favorite character jf sebastian maybe that's why i'm paying more attention to her but i will also say that her dark makeup the airbrushed yep. makeup on the black line across her eyes makes it to where the pupil like not dilation but whatever that specific effect they do with the eyes really stands out on her when they're in the toy shop um, before the manipulation scene. Like you can see that brightness in her pupils so well, it almost looked digital. And I don't know if it was, but it, it looked great. So that's my answer. Daryl Hannah's wardrobe yes, and that's eyes. That's actually a really interesting effect that they did in in fact have. It's uh, similar to sort of the, the red eye effect of, of photography. Um, where you're just getting a bad reflection from something but you know all these actors are staring at a light the whole time because they want to have that that weird reflection in, in coming out of their eyes and it is creepy yeah creepy yeah it works too yeah. because it seems so natural yeah anyway, right that's my how about you i uh i'm Favorite a huge firefly fan and, and wish that more had come of that series but i can't help but draw parallels to deckard's wardrobe to that of uh captain malcolm reynolds uh it's <laughs> oh my it's, gosh you're it's, right it's always been a piece for me where i you know we have juxtapositions and whatnot but uh i've always liked his style and it carried over you know i've, I've tried to make a point of where this movie has taken other movies and other TV shows. Uh, but I would say that that's probably the avenue I would take wardrobe in this is, is where that went. Great, great choice. That is that's a really interesting connection I hadn't thought about that just is uh, has worked perfectly. Well, I, I, yeah. De Deckard's wardrobe is worth remarking on. It's worth remarking on. It is... Uh, He's he's not superhero. He is he's man who is in a job, an ex job. He's yeah. brought back. Yeah, I love you know. So like you, Dustin, I think that there are certain wardrobe moments in this movie that are just absolutely iconic and which I could call out. But I feel like I want to bring up one that to me is something that comes out of this movie as just incredibly striking. This is another contender for a favorite shot in the movie, but very early on, they're at street level, and people are walking around with these umbrellas that have light sticks as the handle poles, and it's just such a visually arresting thing in this scene shot in the rain that's pouring down and around, and there's all these really beautiful lights. It's like, this environment that you're living in is horrifyingly ugly, but you're making, you're, you're coming up with these kind of beautiful timeless images within that and it's it, it's kind of it's kind of awesome so that's what i'm going to call out here is uh i want that prop that's the prop it is awesome i think beauty is in the eye of the beholder at this point um you have a lot of instances where you know you grow up in a certain location you find beauty where you can um if you grow up in a dystopian future where everything's you know maybe a little crappy then you find beauty in 
in the in, in the locales and and you know yeah. whatever you can. I uh, it's it's such a weird thing um, to talk about beauty because there's such a diverse range of of preferences that go to that, and I think that what this movie is really trying to put forth is we all have the right or the at least should have the right and opportunity to find those beauties where we can and one of the things that really struck me um probably the third or fourth watch i i just i i didn't care about the ref uh the romance aspect of this as a younger guy i i i didn't really <laughs> some of the nuances of this just weren't as important like uh dustin was talking about like you you, you get like yeah deep you get not deep, that important <laughs> you get you get deeper levels the more <laughs> and more you watch it and and this is another thing i like about this movie is sometimes i find something that i didn't notice the other 50 times i've watched it so it's nice to have you know the retrospect but the whole thing between you know he and Rachel is not just from a 2049 perspective if you haven't seen it please watch that but he is initially completely unwilling to hear any basically propaganda that they put in her head to the point where he turns the other cheek and says you know what who am I to judge what you deem real because if you look at everything else out there right now who am I to judge what you or what you hold sacred. So, in the end, does it matter? Do you dream electric yep. sheep? In the end, did did Deckard succeed at what he was supposed to do? He, yeah, he did put down a bunch of replicants, but they, the replicants, succeeded in their mission. Hashtag Watch Twenty Forty Nine. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in in a movie that really asks the question. Also, you know, these memories are coming from. Tyrell's nieces, Deckard says. And you got to ask, like, if these people have these memories, they almost have a right to all of the things that come with that because they are made into that person in a lot of, in just so many ways. It's really interesting. It's a deep movie. It really is a deep movie. It's, yeah. One, one of many just incredibly, incredibly fascinating things. Uh, next on our list is the change one thing. But before I do that, I'm, it, it occurs to me. Oh, wild card. What is? Uh, yeah, can, can can I throw a wild card? Wild card, yeah. We're, we're talking about themes, uh, Brian. I, I, if would you say that that is your favorite theme I or idea the, in this movie? It's not about a favorite theme. I think it's about the the primary theme is what does it mean to be human? Because you can go on Netflix and watch documentaries yeah. about serial killers, and they'll complain or uh, proclaim you know, this is inhuman. They'll use the word, and that's an actual human. Here you have a replicant that is easily capable of ending human life, but in the end chooses to save it in the hope that the message gets across that he is indeed something worthy to be called human. So I would say that that in the end, it's an introspective piece on what is it worth to really call yourself that. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a really well explored theme that this movie achieves in a really, really amazing way. Uh, Dustin, do you is I know this is a bit of a wild card random question, but is there is there something else that pops out to you as as a way that you would sort of summarize how this movie works or the best sort of 
deep discussion point that um, this brings up pass. to you. <laughs> no, I'm, no I'm, I'm totally kidding. Of course right. not. Of course not. Of course not. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm sorry no, to, spring, no. to spring this out because this is a movie that when I watched again and also connecting probably because of sort of things things that I'm thinking about with other science fiction franchises that I've seen is, you know, there's a lot of science fiction franchises that ask, you know, what what does it mean to be human when we make robots? At what point do they, do they become human? But one of the things that I realized that this movie is doing at the same time, it's exploring what does it mean to be human while humanity is essentially giving birth to the next species or and and moving out to the stars what does it mean to be sort of left behind on this earth that is sort of the last vestige of uh, you know what's what's left of the of the earth with this it's really interesting let me tell you what uh stood out to me in the movie jf sebastian says to chris when he's welcoming inside her home, inside his home. Now, I've got plenty to eat inside. For the record, uh, true Tennessean, so that's not a fake <laughs> accent, which is a huge bonus for me. That's not a fake Southern accent. One of the worst things that could ruin it. Um, he says something along the lines of, yeah, there's plenty of space. There's, 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 there's no reason for people not to have a home. And that is something that is poignant to me because there is plenty of space. And there's, um, there is in this world, Blade Runner space for people to live, even if it is a decrepit hotel that is, uh, you know, falling apart because of the rain. There's plenty to go around, and uh, yeah, Deckard it asks for four pieces of sushi, but he only gets two. And uh, two, there are, two, there are four, two, two, and two. Ah, and, and for the record, for, for the record, Fry, that that uh, <laughs> that sushi like salesman knows what he's saying, he's pretending not to. Um, so the idea of there's always enough to go around is something that really matters it, to me. And even in a world like this, it's still true. So, uh, uh, yeah, if you if somebody wanted to follow up on that, that, that's just something that I feel like is you don't have to go into space. Once I'm, once people vacate, there's there's space for you. We can. I, I'm sure space. that everybody. I like has I like the phrase we can make has it. like some key endpoint where they're like, "Yay, I'm watching this movie." And for me, in this movie, it's when he goes, "They say you are Blade Runner." And I'm like, yes, yes, he is. <laughs> it's one of those like Mortal Kombat. <laughs> it has begun. <laughs> this is <laughs> so, like maybe maybe yes. like, not the best, <laughs> best quote, but it, it is the it's a set off point where I'm like, oh, I can't wait. <laughs> they say you are Blade Runner. I'm like, yes, man. <laughs> this is why this is such a great movie because there are so many different conversations and themes to have. Out of out out of what what this goes on, which is why I wanted to ask this, because the the thing that I've noticed in in sort of the last watch through is all these points that are a little bit weird. That because on one hand it's about what it is for the replicants and their struggle and their need to be recognized as true individuals who are who are human or more potentially in terms of their emotional individual capacity but it's also interesting like 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 we're talking about with what happens to humanity and what does that mean as 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 they're starting to almost fade away i mean this is a story where people are are leaving the earth going out to the stars but also replicants are probably very you know high in number out there in a way 
So that's one thing. And it's also interestingly telling to me that the Tyrell Corporation passes along some very specific memories to the replicants. There's the obviously fant fantasy sort of memory of the unicorn that Deckard has. There's this scary story of the spider story that, uh, that, that Rachel retells, which is a crazy story to think about where the Tyrell Corporation is realizing its place. It is the mother spider in a way. It is. It has spun its crazy web and is in control of everything. And now it's realizing that its progeny its replicants could consume it later and that it seems really telling to me that that is something that they pass along to to the replicants so while there are plenty of people there's plenty of space to go around but humanity is refusing to admit that things are moving on their 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 progeny are growing up and they should and and they need to deal with it so just a movie full of interesting themes so i thought i would i would bring that that up for this but let's let's move on to one more item. Change one thing. Dustin, what would you change? Oh, I don't know if this is going to be a surprise to anyone, but let's get rid of Gap. <laughs> no, 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 I'm sorry. sorry there's, there's actually two, there's two real answers here. First one is the scroll at the beginning. Do we need it? Good question. I don't think so. I think there's plenty of in-movie time to have that work. The scroll... Is it, great well, it was, for it was a Star Wars. Of its time. Let's leave there it were several movies, and it's not even needed for Star Wars. Uh, I agree with you. I think it's something that could easily be left off of this movie, but um, it it was something that in the the early to mid eighties was heavily utilized for, um, frankly, laziness, exposition, laziness. Yeah. So, and then so that's one thing. The second thing, and I think this is better because both of mine were just like get rid of something. This one I like. We learn from Bryant that. Six replicants attacked the Tyrell Corporation. One of them gets burnt up in electric field. One of them gets captured or something. Show that in a some capacity, whether it's just a two-minute clip of like these incredibly uh, versatile hunter slash warriors um, attack a building, or just have that have those be flashbacks in some way. Because we loved seeing how the replicants showed emotion when they lost a comrade or when they were afraid. And so I think if we could add in something along the lines of the, what Bryant described as that initial attack, I don't want to see them slaughtering 23 civilians on a shuttle. I want to see them attacking Tyrell Corporation. That, I think, could be very cool. Yeah, yeah. Hey, can I connect the dots on some of those? What if the opening scene of this movie yes. was the raid on the Tyrell Corporation? We're introduced to our villains early. Maybe they have some expo expositional dialogue that explains why they're doing it. Like they're psyching they, each other up to go. They oppressed us. Slaves. They took away our yeah. right to live. Storm the gates. And then they fail. Some of them die. Cut away. Yes. Yes. That could, that could work. And I've thought about that same thing. So that's my answer. I know... I know that yeah, clearly the the best answer in the world would be to get rid of Gap, but the, my answer for the show is uh, <laughs> is, is the yeah. show show like uh, how that attack went. I really am curious what the structure is with replicants off world because they talk about oh we've created these perfect servants that they are the reason that we're able to explore off world they are the workforce on which we build things and 2049 underlines that man i want to see what that really means what you know i i mean i'm, I'm, I'm going to get to my favorite quote later but man i want
want to see some of these some of these amazing things. Oh, I wonder what your favorite the quote is. Of Orion uh, being described here. Right. Well, I mean, I, I'm thinking I wonder, of like what, what, what could it I, I don't know if they, if they were there. <laughs> like seeing a bunch of replicants working on a spaceship outside of a ship, or seeing a bunch of replicants that are working on a a, 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 a high heat or a high cold um, type of situation. Uh, that could be that could be thirty seconds to show you. Oh, this is what they do. Yeah. This is what I'm, they've been doing. But it's in space. Yeah. And who knows, maybe there are more varieties of replicants than we've seen, and some of them are, are really intended for, for being in space versus just incredibly resistant to yeah. high heat and extreme cold like we like we see. All right, Justin, to you, what is the best quote of this movie? Wrote a whole bunch of quotes. I like, I like good quotes for the show. The film noir aspect, um, Deckard has a newspaper. And when he's got his newspaper, he's almost camouflaged, like he can get anywhere. Um, uh-huh. The way I thought of it was sort of like Solid Snake with his cardboard box. He's, he can get anywhere with his newspaper. And then that's when he starts his internal monologue. And so my favorite quote that reminded me of him just like struggling with himself, like uh, another dame walked in the office like a private eye, is this quote. I'm going to do my Harrison Ford impression. Replicants were not supposed to have feelings. Neither were Blade Runners. What the hell was happening to me? <laughs> He's actually asking himself, well, good gracious, what's going on? <laughs> and, I, and I liked it. Because it did, it did uh, create a dichotomy of there are Blade Runners and replicants, and they're supposed to be like opposites of each other, and one's the hunter, one's the hunted. But it was just something we hadn't really talked about is uh, his internal monologue throughout the, the show. And so I, I decided I'd pick that quote as the one that was my favorite. Yeah. Well, Brian, how about you? Favorite uh, I already ruined mine, but it's gaffes. It's too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? I think anybody who's ever worked and had a trying day in their job hasn't thought something <laughs> similar to this. <laughs> so I just, I like, I feel like that's very telling. It's like, Dude, how do you not have a day where you're just like, ah, is this really what it is? <laughs> like, if this is really all it is, ah, <laughs> uh, all right. Am I just waiting until I can fall asleep? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I this is just a short anecdote. Um, I was, uh, I was, I was at work, heard a couple people talk, literally listen. I had to. I mean, they were standing right behind. They, they ignore you as a person because you work there. Um, had just the most inane conversation I've ever heard in my life. I think a small hole in the atmosphere opened up because of the exhaust of this conversation. And and, and so <laughs> when when you hear Gaff say this, you're just like, yeah, that's uh, mm-hmm, that's accurate. <laughs> I get you, Gaff. So, I get you. Uh, oh God, like, <laughs> yeah, that. Well. My favorite quote is the one that just pulls me to the stars, and uh, I, I, I just think it's it's so, so beautiful, so beautifully delivered, so beautifully shot, just amazing. Right at the end of the movie, Roy Batty, just as he knows he's about to die, passes some knowledge onto the Blade Runner he knows has been forced to tail him, attack ships off the off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears and rain. Time to die. I just, it was... It's so good. That's, it's so good. That is a moment. Forever. Rest in peace. Hey, rest in peace, uh, Rucker Howard. Absolutely. And Brian James. Yeah, true. Amazing work. Amazing work. Well, that brings us to the end of our superlatives. 
And while technically we don't have a guest on this, since Dustin is now officially a host among us. Yeah, we don't have a Russell guest I on this. I will still give, huh? Last name joke. Uh, oh, super yeah. cool last name joke. I always wonder about that. Not not in podcast, obviously, for this discussion. But his name is Russell Gaston. My name is now Dustin. That people House. make guest, guest <laughs> jokes all the time around him or something. All right. Well, now that we're we've finished off with our movie superlatives, it's time to move on to our ratings. We rate on a series on on a scale of zero to five stars in half star increments i'm not sure if we're if any of us are going to have to use that half star increment in this uh particular review but uh brian or but uh dustin Ooh, yeah. oh are we switching up the order for the last category you go brian first <laughs> why did my brain do that i don't know, I don't know. Um, <laughs> probably because i was thinking about how this is brian's favorite movie but anyway but dustin what is your rating for Blade Runner? I have a cheeky answer that I'm not, I'm actually going to skip. Uh, this is 4.5 stars. This is, uh, <gasps> this is incredibly high. Um, I uh, when, when it comes to survey methodology and ranking systems, I am um, really skeptical of zeros and fives. This is as high of a score that I think I can give. Uh, I've mentioned that I don't like Gath. And I also mentioned, well, you know what? I did not mention the scene that is actually keeping it from the five, which is um, which is a scene that, if you've watched the movie, you know. And it is completely something that in today's day and age would never be filmed. Would not fly. I know. And we all know where we're talking about. <laughs> so that's why it's a four and a half, not a five. But this is essentially the highest ranking I can give. Uh, I mean, I might give The Fifth Element a five, but there are some movies that I might give a five. But this is so good, and it enthralled me in a way. Uh, four and a half. Incredible movie. Well, Brian, what do you have I, to say? Uh, I want to take a Billy Bob moment from uh, Varsity Blues and be like, Tan! <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I won't continue that quote. But uh, no, this is this is a five for me. Like I said, like I, I haven't seen a movie better than this, I don't think. And look, I'll agree with him too. Like Fifth Element, like I have movies that I truly love. I really do. And and they're important to me in a variety of ways. But this is one of the few blendings where I'm like, okay, I love this movie. I think that, that there should have been a critical reception to this movie equivalent to that love. And and I think that the longevity and, and even though the initial critical, you know, uh, relevancy, which I wasn't even alive for, that, like that doesn't mean anything to me because I got the, the after effects. I, I got to hear what the world thought of it after people really had a chance to digest how good this movie was. So, yeah, I mean, I give it a five. I think it's it's well-deserving of all the accolades it's gotten over time. And I, this is one of those movies that I will enjoy uh, introducing to my daughter when she is not as young as Dustin. <laughs> not 11. <laughs> this is going to blow Check your mind. Up. Probably not. And she's like, and she's like, <laughs> wow. It would. <laughs> You're not gonna... <laughs> How about veggie tales? <laughs> gotta got, 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 gotta ramp up the sci-fi slowly to meet that phase. There's plenty of sci-fi you can bring in earlier than that. Yeah. You know Peppa Pig goes to space. I feel something. like 
I am going to cause some extreme raised eyebrows here when I say I have not seen The Fifth Element. We should do that sometime sure. on this podcast because uh, I haven't seen that movie. And I feel like as someone who loves sci-fi and who uh, thinks that he has a fair amount of sci-fi knowledge and, uh, and cred on that side, that is a, that is a big hole in my, in my experience. But, you know, I'm going to join you, Brian, on that five stars. I, this is a movie that that you could live in and the texture is just amazing the amount of love and care that was shoved into every corner of this movie is uh is, is just something that, that that i think is pretty amazing did, did my score pre- did my score prevent this movie from getting into some type of ring of honor because if it did, <laughs> i'm no, sorry but no, it's no, no we're actually <laughs> we're, we'll do it end of the year and, and they'll factor everything so good good i would be shocked if anything gets any higher than this. This is a it's a pretty special movie, and I, like you, Dustin, consider the five star something that uh, that, that I will not give out lightly. Same. There are there are very few movies I would ever give five stars. This is one of them. Well, I was lucky to be a part of it then. <laughs> and the one dissenting justice spreading <laughs> <laughs> this fuck this gaff guy. I don't even understand. <laughs> <laughs> 20 pages on this oh, this, oh, this wardrobe on gap dot 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 I can do origami <laughs> on gap <laughs> all right well this has been a great review of this movie Blade Runner but we gotta make a selection for the movie for next time we have three options here option one is Encino Man from 1992 when they find a frozen caveman in their backyard, two high school outcasts thaw him and introduce him to modern life while he, in turn, gets them to actually enjoy life. Option two, Dogma from 1999. An abortion clinic worker with a special heritage is called upon to save the existence of humanity from being negated by two renegade angels trying to exploit a loophole and re-enter heaven. Or is it option three, Get Shorty from 1995. A mobster travels to Hollywood to collect a debt and discovers that the movie business is much the same as his current job. Brian, what are we going to look at? So I think I, I think next week we should go with Get Shorty. All right. Well, mobster movies collecting debt. Very, very exciting. Looking forward to, looking forward to doing that. Yeah, me too. I'll be there to help with Get Shorty. Good choice. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well. Thank you, Justin, so much for joining us today and for podcasts in the future. We are excited to have you and look forward to watching more movies with you. Oh, yeah. So remember, all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Or email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated, and we will go toward making the show better for you, our listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other, and watch more movies. Brian? Just as individuals are born, mature, breed and die. So do societies, civilizations, and governments.